listeners and welcome to Pop Screen, part of the Geek Show Podcast Network. We are that corner of the Geek Show that likes to look at the good, the bad and the bewildering of movies, either starving about or by pop stars. No, the podcast covers a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from country and western to hip-hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graham Williamson, and I'm a writer for We Are Cult, Byline Times, Film Stories and The Geek Show. And I've been joined this week by... I'm Aiden. Hi. Um... Uh, long-time contributor for The Geek Show. You can find me on Letterboxd under the username NF, and I'm on Twitter as well under the Twitter handle Doco and Drummer. Indeed. Now, uh, it's a bit of a memorial episode this week, isn't it? We are, mm. we are joined to watch a eulogy for someone who has died that was made seven years before he died, which is... I mean, it's efficient, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even know how I can pick up from that, to be perfectly honest with you. Um... <laughs> well, l- let's, just, let's just say what it is. Let's just say what it is, because uh, that, that is an odd way to start. But it's the ecstasy of Wilco Johnson. It's uh, Julian Temple's uh, film, because we are pop screen, the Julian Temple podcast, whether we like it or not. Uh... <laughs> do, do you do like a, are you going to do a segment for this podcast where you write every single Julian Temple film you've covered? I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's worryingly close to reality at this point, because what have we done? We've done Crock of Gold, we've done Mantrap, we've done Absolute Beginners, and the thing with Jubilee and Temple is you can just keep going from there, because seemingly every single one of his movies has some sort of music connection. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or go to pop screen where we review everything julian temple has done it's very niche isn't it there are a lot of podcasts that do that have that kind of ordeal approach where they just go through the whole of some franchise or someone's career uh, methodically but only we are stupid enough to do it while also doing a load of other stuff in between and it's worth it because I, I do quite like julian temple's films to be fair so i do yes hmm. But this is, I mean, I don't know if I would say it's his best film, Um, possibly not, but I will say when I think of Julian Temple, this is the one that comes through as being the most quintessentially Julian Temple in a lot of ways. Mm. Yes, yes, definitely agree. And um, because I've seen this before, this is a a rewatch that I had to do because I'd seen The Ecstasy of Wilco Johnson before. I think this was just before I was getting into Doctor Feel Good or or when I was, I should say. Um, And it did inform me a lot about the guy. And um, and like as as we were saying before, because Wilco Johnson has sadly uh, is no longer with us. Um, Mm. So it only makes sense we we do an episode tackling this film finally. Mm. Yes. Because this was made after Oil City Confidential, which was Temple's first um, documentary about Dr. Feelgood. And like I say, I talk about this guy being the ultimate pop screen director. When you have someone who's made more than one film about Dr. Feelgood, (laughs) you know, what more can I say? Yeah, yeah. Well, to be fair, I mean, he's made, I don't, I can't even remember how many films on the Sex Pistols now, but he has done a couple <laughs> on them as well. So it's not unheard of. 
it's part of the Yorterist approach to it, though, isn't it? That these that there are things in Julian Temple's work that just make their way into film after film that he's made. You know, when we did Crock of Gold, it was great seeing Temple's original footage of the Sex Pistols when they started out in there, mm. even though it isn't a Sex Pistols film. And you, you can spot a lot of his preoccupations running through this as well, although... In, in a strange way, I think Johnson and Temple are probably quite similar people. Yeah, I mean, yeah, very eccentric, do you think? They've got that kind of working class autodidact kind of thing going on. You know, mm. when he starts cutting in clips from you know, Sergio Parajanov films or recreating The Seventh Seal, you think, well... I don't know if that's Johnson coming up with that or whether that's Temple, because yeah. it feels like it could be either man. And that could backfire spectacularly easily. Because <laughs> if, you, if, yeah. you, like, if you snipping in snippets of like all these weird world art house films, like as you say, work of Sergio Parajanov, The Seventh Seal, uh, I think Stalker, a clip from Stalker's used Lord as well. Tarkovsky, but... yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that could come off as like really pretentious, but I don't know. It it sort of works in the film's favour because, um, and I think no less, it serves to the power of the story uh, yeah. with what Wilco Johnson was going through at this moment in his life. Yeah, because this was made when he just had a cancer diagnosis and he was told in no uncertain terms that he had a year left to live. And the first time I think people became aware of this was this extraordinary segment on BBC Breakfast News, which is excerpted in the film. In here, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's like the depth of, depths of uh, Temple's cultural palette, you know, Stalker and BBC Breakfast News. He can run the gamut there. <laughs> National treasure, Julian Temple. <laughs> <laughs> but to be yeah. fair, yeah. yeah. Um, to be fair, he's Adam Curtis. He's being his most Adam Curtisy here, isn't he? He is, yeah. And I think that kind of obsessive layering is a very Julian Temple thing because I think it comes from that era of the music press where it's like it's pre-internet. You know, if you want to learn about your favourite artists, buying a copy of Melody Maker or NME is the only thing, mm. you know, that you that you can uh, resort to. And if your favourite band makes some abstruse reference in their lyrics, and listen, as I was a teenage Manic Street Preachers fan, so this happened to me all the fucking time, uh, they're your only shot. You know, they're the people who decide for it for you. And I think that attitude that music is, that rock music in particular is part of high culture and rock music can be deciphered by looking at, you know, Stalker and the Icelandic sagas and the 17th century metaphysical poet Thomas Traherne had to look that one up listeners but it's in there uh, <laughs> it's that, a that's, one <laughs> yeah but that's that's what Temple does that's his shtick that's his thing right mm. and it's it, it's completely enriching stuff as well so it, mm. it doesn't like work against the film it, it works totally well um yeah as Grover was saying it, it works particularly well here, but he goes in particularly heavy with it here. And I think part of the reason why it works is that this is not just a film about rock music. This is a film about a man staring down death. Mm, life and death. Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
And when he was on BBC Breakfast, he gave this extraordinary interview, which people still remember today, where he talked about how this knowledge that he had a year left was giving him so much focus and clarity. And ironically, he was enjoying life so much more now that the Mm. sort of the big question of, you know, what am I doing? Where is this going? Is is answered in these very cold terms. You are going to die in a year's time. And, mm. you know, it, it gave him a sense of joy that people were really fascinated by. Because it taps into his feelings a lot, doesn't it, this film? And it gives him a voice that um, to really express that. Um, because, you know... And of course, you've got to do that for a man, and you've got to make Wilco Johnson the central focus. Duh, his name's in the title, so it only makes sense. Yeah. Um, but they, there's there's loads of quotes from him that are, are really quite inspiring. I mean, one that I noted down: "If it's going to kill me, I don't want it to bore me." Yes, I noted that down. I was uh, like you on rewatching this. I was reminded that this is basically wall to wall great Wilco Johnson quotes. Mm, definitely and he's a character man i I really did love the dude um because for for the uninitiated um dr fingergus came about in that kind of it it was called pub rock which i think by the time i was getting into music had become kind of a derisive term but it was more Mm. interesting than that the there was this kind of grassroots movement in the early 70s before punk of people who wanted to get rock and roll out of the kind of prog concept album space and back towards a kind of roots, unpretentious, straight-ahead rock and roll. And you get that from uh, Wilco Johnson's uh, interview here. I think he like there's a snippet of him uh, saying that, uh, with a sneer in the voice saying, I don't like uh, prog music. He doesn't even use prog rock, he just says prog music. (laughs) Yes. So you definitely get that. It's very sharp in terms of his opinions. But there there is, I think like all things that are successfully straight ahead and gut level, there is a degree of sophistication to it anyway. And in Dr. Feelgood's case, that sophistication comes from Wilco Johnson's guitar playing, which is far, far more elaborate than it actually sounds. Mm, yeah, it's it's very impressive because it's it's mm. I think it's finger pick style. So and not in the sense like how Mark and Offler would finger play, uh, finger pick, but it's like constantly da da dun da 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 dun da 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 dun da. It's like I said before, it's very sharp guitar playing. But you've also got his presence where he's like darting across the stage back and forth. Yes, and not in like an Angus Young stance where he's like all over the place. He's like just walking constantly to and fro. You think the guy's insane when you look at him. Because <laughs> uh, he he's just like what constantly walk, uh, walking backwards and forwards while staring at you. He's just he had that completely terrifying demeanor to him. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. Part part of the stage presence that he had is down to the fact that he's a really intimidating looking guy. This sort of bald guy with a skull like head and really fierce eyes. And of course, in his uh, in his later years, one of the, his most one of the side hustles that he enjoyed the most was a small part he had as an executioner in Game of Thrones. In Game of Thrones, yes. Out in this film, yeah. Mm. 
uh, because he's, that character I, I had had his tongue ripped out. So he said it was great. I didn't have to learn any lines. I just have to glower at people and look mad. <laughs> and I'm great at that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, it, yeah. Uh, I can't fault him. Well done, well done Wilco. <laughs> yeah. So it, his whole stage presence is this sort of really interesting mess of opposites he has this very sophisticated guitar playing style where uh, as is explained in the documentary he's basically playing rhythm and lead on the same instrument at the same time Mm, yeah but if you listen to it you're not listening to someone show off you're listening to something that sounds really sort you know it sounds uh, as primal and basic as the stooges but it's yeah, achieved yeah. in this remarkably nimble, virtuoso way. You have him running around. You have him looking terrifying. You have the fact that he's a remarkably educated man and an amateur astronomer off camera. And I think, <laughs> wow, what, I just know, love even that. before he's in a life or death situation, even before that, what a subject for a documentary. Hmm. Definitely. Um, yeah, he's he's an interesting character. He's a great mm. character. And it's just a shame because I don't think we'll ever get another Wilco Johnson like this at all. Yeah. Um, I, I, he was definitely one of a kind. I, you know, part of what excites me about him is the class thing, that he's this unashamedly intellectual working class guy and he likes, you know... Uh, you know, he drinks and he plays rock and roll, but he also likes reading Icelandic sagas. Uh, and, and part of you just thinks, oh, where is the Wilco Johnson for today? And the answer is probably stacking shelves in Sainsbury's. Mm, yeah, definitely. It's it, it's a sad truth, unfortunately. Um, but then, you know, you look at this guy, uh, like I say, with his like stage presence and persona, and he is pretty much Dr. Feelgood. Or one of mm. like the key face in it, really, in my eyes. Yeah, and that's kind of that's kind of a shame, and I don't really mean that to belittle anyone else in the band, particularly, of course, the other key member of Doctor Feelgood. I think it was Lee Brillo. Lee Brillo, yeah, yeah, he was obviously a great vocalist as well. But there was just something about Johnson, man, um, that you can definitely tell that he was like a pivotal character in that band, yeah. in that band sound as well. Yeah, and I think for a lot of fans of Dr. Feelgood and for a lot of fans of Temple Oil City Confidential is maybe the fan picks. It's more thoroughly about Dr. Feelgood and their history. But part of why I love the ecstasy of Wilco Johnson is that you can basically show anyone it and it works for them. You do not have to care about pub rock or Dr. Feelgood or music at all, to be honest, in order Mm. to get something out of this movie. Because it explores, you know, the subject really, really well, doesn't it? And its themes. Mm. Um, it, it goes from it from top to bottom, not really a, a stone's left unturned. I mean, even when, I mean, I think my favourite passage of this is when he goes to Japan. Mm. And, you know, he clearly expresses Japan as like this place that he always loves going to. And I don't blame him because Japan's gorgeous. Mm. Um, but there's one specific memory where he says that, um, and my favourite bit of it was where he sees like, he goes to like this, isolated temple in Kyoto and obviously no there's not a single soul there and um obviously he sees snowfall in like mm. mountain range but also at the moment is like sunlight like beaming off this the snowflake so it gives this uh, uh image that it's golden snow pretty much 
and yeah. you know, he, and he actually says in like the notes to this and the, the voiceover that um, you know, I have to experience this now because if I log this in the back of my memory, I can't just put it in the back of this memory because obviously I'm going to be dead in like a year, so I have to like be in the moment. Yes. That's the um, bit that always sticks out for me as well, yeah. And it's, a, you know, it's, it's great. It, it's just a great little, uh, you know, tidbit in a film that's full of tidbits like that. But it's also, uh, there's also that moment on the Japanese tour where he's playing a gig over there and the fans at the end say, yeah, he's playing a gig and he's completely upfront about the fact that he's dying of cancer. He's announced this tour, we're saying, you know, this is the most accurately named farewell tour in the history of rock and roll music because I will be dead after this. Mm. And the fans are nevertheless screaming, Wilco, we'll see you again, which proves to be a bit prescient, doesn't it? Hmm, definitely. Because quite late on in this documentary, once he's settled and got his affairs in order, there's there's a cam... Is it a photographer? A photographer? It's a photographer, yes. Yeah. Uh, Char- Charlie Chan is the guy's name, yeah. That's it, yes, yeah. Um, which, you know, again, is another sort of cinema history reference for Temple to throw in. But, oh, um... yeah, don't get me started on that. Um <laughs> Uh, listeners, in case you don't know, there is, I think, a, like a series of Hollywood films in the, from the 30s that um, had a character called Charlie Chan. And yeah, very racist is all it, Yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> part of the racist detective fad of the 30s. Yeah, I don't think we're going to see Ryan Johnson reviving that one anytime soon. No, uh, definitely not. No, God. <laughs> but yeah. Um, he is a photographer, but he also has like a medical background and he's taking photos of this gig because he's contracted to do so. But as he does so, he's thinking, if this guy's had that cancer for as long as he says he has, he shouldn't be running around the stage by now. Mm, definitely. And it's also how Temple frames the interviews as well that I think is much more dynamic. Because mm-hmm. when you think of it like a typical music documentary, it's either done like the Asaf Kapadia way, where it's um, done completely uh, all through voiceover, yeah. or um, you, know, you know, you do it like I guess on like MTV, the big know, BBC where, Four, the Friday BBC Night Four, approach, or, or behind yeah. the or behind the scene, behind the music. I mean, sorry, where yeah. you know it's like studio environment, and you know you have like talking head interviews, pretty much. Yeah, mm. um, with Temple, he's a lot more dynamic because. Um, with Charlie Chan's interview, he's like interviewed as if he was like photographing a gig. So he's behind like yeah. barriers and um, it completely taps into like, you know, it provides like an interesting little flavor. And there's obviously many interviews like that with say like Wilco Johnson or <clears throat> another one is uh, with the surgeon who performs like the operation where mm. it's actually done behind the glass where you see like, um, like the two all scattered around and that's like completely temple. I yeah, think. yeah. He's very fond of these th- these interviews that have a sense of reality, and that in the examples you've quoted, those are people who were standing in the environments that they will be in in mm. order to perform their jobs. But there's also something really artificial about them, which I like. I mean, the one that stuck out for me is when he wants Wilco to like really delve back into his memory into like the early days of Dr. Feelgood in mm-hmm. growing up on Canby Island, anything like that. 
he has him in this tiny old projection room with a load of like 16 millimeter film cams all around and the sunlight shining through a fan in the wall and it's exactly the sort of location where you just expect that at the end of it alex cox is going to come on go so can you move on for a bit i've got an early 90s movie drone intro to record on this set um it's kind of dated, I guess, but when you compare it to like how a lot of BBC Four or Netflix documentaries work, where you've just got someone sat in front of a photographer's backdrop, it's tons better. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's a lot of fun. And I think also part of what is interesting to me about Temple now, as opposed to what was interesting about Temple when he started... Uh, is that he he has taken this part of moving image culture that is not supposed to be high art and turned it into a vehicle for his own themes and concerns. Like music documentaries get made because there's a big nostalgia market and there are TV channels that seem to show nothing but this kind of thing. Mm. You know, it's not supposed to be where an artist works, but part of being an artist i think is being able to spot a a sort of crack in the wall that no one else has noticed and sort of getting your concerns through there Mm. yeah i definitely agree because you can flick through like uh the artists that you love and say okay i need to do more background research which is what i constantly do for pop screen by the way yeah and then just cherry pick like documentaries just so you can like gain some more information about them or like See, and if they are done in like an artistful way, you just come to love them even more. I quote like Montage of Heck, which does yeah. for me, you know. Um, so no, yeah, I completely agree. Like, uh, like I say, Temple has that in his stride, he knows that. So, why not do like a bajillion of these films and then just you know, and people can like go through the catalog completely? I think my only complaint about him is that uh, he, he's probably done every single music artist there is now and you know it's harder for directors getting a start who want to work in this field because every single artist you can think of has already had a julian temple documentary about them and you can't take that away from the guy at all no absolutely not But yeah, it's 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 funny because I had, like you, I'd seen it before. I saw it a few years back. I saw it when we were doing Cinema Eclectica. I reviewed it for Cinema Eclectica uh, mm. one time. And it's funny the bits of it that stick out in your head. Yes, that, uh, that anecdote about the snow in Japan, absolutely. Uh, the Parajanov stuff really stuck out because it's like... Some of the other stuff, I can imagine someone else dressing up Wilco Johnson as the Grim Reaper in the Seventh Seal as part of a a laugh, because that image is just part of pop cultural currency now. But Mm. bringing in Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors, that's what you turn to Julian Temple to do. That's his Mm. terrain. Mm. Yeah. Like I say, it's like a completely enriching experience because you notice like all these different visual ticks that are just completely temples. Mm, I mean, I remember yeah. like a bit in, um, I believe it's like Oil City Confidential, where because um, which is the other like Julian, one of the other Julian Temple films that I've seen, um, mm. where he like demonstrates like the band's like road trips, but he gets a little map out and then has like little chess pieces with flags on the 
uh, flags on them, saying all the different places that Dr. Feelgood have toured, like Canvey Island, like London, Birmingham, things like that. So he knows how to use it to his advantage. How did, I, I must admit, I only know Oil City Confidential by reputation. Uh, how did, did you feel that there was any repetition between the two films? Uh, no, that's a good question. Um, I think it, they're both good companion pieces, because as you were saying before, um, you know, Oil City Confidential is purely on Dr. Feelgood, which is understandable. Mm. Um, whereas this is going... not necessarily as an expansion but it's more like um expanding on the character of wilco johnson as uh, a human being really Mm. so it's going as a completely different angle so i guess the two work as a duology one is like a unit that is demonstrating like i guess not necessarily rise and fall of a band but like a band's biography yeah um, with all these uh, temple-esque like ticks and qualms to it and the other is like a completely desolate exploration. So it's two uh, distinct sides of a coin, I think. Yeah, that that's interesting. Yeah, I think w- when we talk about franchises in cinema, people rarely talk about documentaries, but there are a lot of documentaries that get sequels. And it's normally just because fate throws some other incident their way. Like Nick Broomfield's made a ton of follow-ups to a lot of his best-known films. And normally it's because somebody in them did another murder or something like that yeah uh, yeah hmm. uh but this is this is a really beautiful one and i wasn't sure whether the knowledge that johnson had now died was going to cast a pall over my rewatch of it but it didn't i still found it a really life-affirming film yeah because it is his character at the end of the mm. day he wouldn't really want anyone to uh well, of course, him passing away is a very sad thing, but um, but he wouldn't want to like overburden it over his fans because it naturally it is part of life. Uh, yeah. So and you know and you don't need to be told that because you know it, it's like the whole gamut of the universe revolt. Well, not maybe not the whole gamut. I'm, I'm sorry to be this morbid, listeners, but um, <laughs> um, but you know what I mean. It, it taps into that theme. So yeah. You know, it's a completely human thing that we all relate to. And for Johnson to go through and be, like, incredibly life-affirming about it, with still a spring in his step, is just lovely to see, really. And he's someone who had, you know, by his own admission, always suffered from depression. And in his case, it made him quite conscientious Mm. about not sort of palming that off on anyone else. You know, he thought if he was in a bad mood, he wanted to just sort of work through it himself Hmm. i watched a little interview he did with a a youtube channel that talks about like guitar effects and Hmm. a lot of it's techie stuff but it struck me that in the six minute interview uh, he does it with chas jankel sat next to him chas jankel who uh, became famous as bassist for the blockheads and is now yeah later uh, was in uh, Wilco Johnson's backing band. You can see him a few times in this mm-hmm. film. Mm-hmm. But he sat there with Chas Jankel, who also has this amazing face, sort of like a, a Victorian Mr. Punch puppet. Yes! Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's, it's Wilco's interview about his guitar equipment you know it's about his playing and he spends half of that short video just talking about how great Chas Jankel is mm definitely 
And yeah, a uh, great little backing band he had in the latter mm-hmm. half of his career. Um, I've forgotten who did the drums, but I'll, I'll have to Google it in a minute. Yeah, I don't remember that either, I'm afraid. Hmm. Uh, but back onto this, um, obviously, like Johnson's late period career is interesting to say the least, because um, he was doing, he was doing obviously a lot of like cover material for Doctor Feelgood. He was doing some originals as well, spiced in. And obviously, when he was dying, he also did a collaboration album with Roger Daltrey, which is uh, tapped into this, isn't it? Yes, yeah, that was going to be his like last. Well, not his last statement. I don't think he, he wanted to have anything as heavy as that hanging over the album, but he wanted it to be like the farewell party for his career. Mm. And it was a massive hit, a bigger hit than any solo album he'd ever put out. Which is weird, considering that <laughs> would be the one. Um, <laughs> but no, um, I, th- I think it was like just simple, synchronized. Look, we've been talking about doing an album together for years, Roger. Uh, do you want to finally do it now that I'm just dying? Yeah, just like, yeah, sure, let's do it. Maybe it isn't that odd. I mean, Death's always sold albums as far back as, you know, Buddy Holly and Bobby Fuller and the Big Bopper. But, you know, mm. it, it it is a beautiful late moment for him to have this moment of sudden transcendent commercial success with a final album that... Mm. Turned out to be not at all final. I wonder if anyone ever took it back to the shops to complain that, you know, we were promised Wilco Johnson's final album and then he went and lived. So it wasn't all that. Yeah. 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 yeah it's an int- it's, um, because, like I said, the pantriotic cancer that Wilco Johnson had was very rare. Very, yeah. very rare. Um, I can't remember what exactly the, uh, the type it was, but, um, but pretty much, uh, obviously, it, it's documented it quite nicely, not in a gratuitous way, just more in like that aspect that you would think, just to state like the hard facts, really. Mm. And you know, it 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 just works. It, it just completely works. And you know, jo- Johnson and Temple don't dwell on that too much. I think it's a nice little balance that they achieve together. Yeah, I think it's it's quite about it, it's quite heavily about the sort of emotional and existential quality of having this hanging over your head until the end when there is this sort of sudden moment of God and you almost, in the context it's quite elating because you are watching them absolutely fuck up that cancer mm, Yeah, definitely, uh, and you can see the humour of it, because um, I think there's like a, a stage show where uh, Roger Daltrey's recounting uh, giving the names to the tumour I think one time he calls <laughs> him Frank or like uh, George or something like that well, the golden uh, example of that is, uh, of course, Dennis Potter, who in his last months decided to name the cancer that was killing him after Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> <laughs> like this uh, terrifying uh, lump that's growing inside you. I can't even think of anything like more scary, really. Um, <laughs> real David Cronenberg shit. It is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, what? one of the things about Cronenberg is that he's quite unemotional about that stuff. He, like, he knows it freaks other people out, and he knows that's something he can make work in a horror film. But when you hear him talk in interviews, he will say, you know, I, I just find it fascinating. It's like mechanics to me, the way the human body works. Mm-hmm. It's, there's yeah. no terror in it. And I, I sort of... I could understand a bit of that when I was watching the surgery scenes in this because I'm just 
fascinated as to how this apparent total death sentence ended up just uh, they say something like it was it just sort of peeled away like an orange it was mm, like yeah the cancer is kind of a living thing and as soon as they'd got it off most of his organs the last thing they had to get off was his heart which is the really risky one because obviously one slip of the scalpel and uh, yeah yeah dead. yeah bad yeah but it, it was like as soon as they'd got it off most of his organs it just gave up the, the thing that was supposed to happen to Wilco Johnson happened to his tumour that it just sort of rolled over and thought, oh, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, and then, yeah, bye. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and look at where we are now. And Wilco Johnson ended up living for um, a few more years after that, which is like yeah, wonderful. best part of a decade. Yeah. Wonderful story to hear. Yeah. 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 Um, it, it's almost quite hard to talk about it because... Uh, this kind of film from Temple analyzes itself more than um, more than you can. Mm. Yeah, and that and that comes down to purely how the film's uh, style and at the very film's yeah. goal, because it is it's very deep cut. It goes into like the obscure bits, like like I say, like Wilco Johnson's um, love for Icelandic poem poetry. <laughs> um, my my favorite bit is the, the fact that he's digging through when he used to be an English teacher. Can you imagine Wilco Johnson as an English <laughs> teacher? <laughs> it's one. It's up there with Ian Curtis's time as a benefits office worker as one of the most unlikely pre rock and roll careers, really, isn't it? Hmm. It's it's really odd, but you know that just comes to show how much of a colourful life he's had. In yeah. Anything. Yeah. It completely taps into that zeitgeist. Yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, it, it, when I speak about Johnson and Temple being in sync, you know, part of it is that Temple is an incredibly literate man who is also capable of being extremely dumb and enjoying it. Mm. And I think I, I can picture many other directors making a video essay that reworks material from Andrei Tarkovsky's Stalker to tell a story about a man facing cancer. I cannot imagine any other director also including an insert of a toy lobster singing Shaking All Over. <laughs> yep, very uh, eccentric, like as I was saying before. Very eccentric taste. It's a little bit weird once you get the hang of it, but once you get, like I say, once you get the hang of it, it you can totally accept it being like Junie Temple style. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, any any further thoughts before we close off? Any thoughts on Johnson himself? Because I must admit, I'm not a huge Doctor Feelgood fan. Uh, mm. Rather like sort of uh, like I am with some bands I talk about. I guess I, I don't dislike them. I've just never had that moment where I've really dived in. Because the lovely thing is, is that um, I actually, uh, and I, I don't mean this to obviously like blow my own trumpet or anything like this, but um, a few years back, I actually did see Wilco Johnson live. Oh, fabulous. And this was, it was lovely because it was like a five minute walk from uh, where we're staying at because I, I was like studying my MA at the time. So, uh, and the gig was only like a five minute walk from where I was staying. So it was just like, great <laughs> gig, like five minute walk. I'll go. And it was a fun night. It was, I've got to admit, it was like a really great, lovely night just to see him. Like, And this was like after, obviously, he had uh, the cancer surgery. So yeah, obviously that wasn't really on his mind anymore at the time. Uh, but it was just a fun 
gig and it just comes to show like um how enriching this experience is just to see him as a character and i'll always have that appreciate it you know now that he has is sadly no longer with us that i did actually manage to catch him before obviously that it's nice that he had i mean he always had a very strong cult following and you know, I think if you were going to do a more conventional music documentary about the sort of ups and downs of Wilco Johnson's career, you would be a bit stuck because mm. there haven't really been peaks and troughs. He's been going on at roughly the same level of yeah. like acclaim since the early 70s. But it was nice that he had that moment before his death, which just prompted so many people to just say how much they loved his music and to value him while he was here to value him as much as he came to value his life really mm, definitely agree i think if you want to get into dr feelgood the live album stupidity is a great pick uh, to get interested in because like a lot of things like a lot of live records i, I think live music it can really give you a sense of what the artist in question is like mm. um and stupidity is a great uh pick because like they're just like burst through each and every song in the set list and it is just there's a lot of energy to it that i really do love i mean when we talk about sort of wilco johnson as a, a guy who's smart enough to understand the appeal of sort of heads down basic dirty dumb music calling a live album stupidity is kind of the apex of that isn't it it's wonderful isn't it <laughs> yeah 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 and that's why i kind of love the dude so much yeah um so if you enjoyed that we put a bonus episode out on our patreon every month uh where you can also find rob's views of asian films my doctor who reviews and much more that's at www.patreon.com forward slash the geek show uh but until then i've been graham and i've been aiden and we'll see you in a fortnight with more pop screen (laughs) 